Uh, Father, we uh, thank you the days are getting warm and longer. Summer's upon us. Father, that's a time for a lot of enjoyment in many ways. We know we're looking forward to it, Father. We also pray, Father, that we would uh, enter into it uh, with a greater understanding of you through your word and that we wouldn't take a vacation, Father, from our walk and from our prog- uh, progress in maturing in the faith, but we would uh, see the, the longer days as an opportunity, Father, to serve you in, in even more ways. And tonight, Father, we return to prepar- uh, preparing for that service, to, serving, to sitting at your feet as a student and as your servant, to learn about the servant whom is our master. We ask, Father, that you would uh, guide us through the study tonight as you do so, regularly and so faithfully. And I pray for each heart, Father, that hears these words, that you would stir up in them a greater affection for the servant that we now serve ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We've gone through 49. What was 49? There was a way of summing up 49. Introduced the Messiah with a description of his calling. So chapter 49 was the calling, the commissioning. God the Father saying, here's why I'm calling you. Here's what you are to do for me. Chapter 50, tonight through 52, is a part of a section that concludes actually in 53 next week. It will be the what? The sufferings? The sufferings he he will undergo? So, here we're told about his call. If you could possibly imagine reading this without knowing what's coming, like we do now, we know, what, you know, we know what he did when he came. We have the Gospels. If you could pretend you didn't know that, what's been told up to about chapter 49 is the need for a Redeemer and that God was going to send one. And he was going to bring in this age of triumph for Israel. So, what do you expect? You expect his calling to be, you know, come down and reign, come down and rule, come down and conquer. That's what we expect God the Father to call for his son, the servant. But now it starts, you know, remember the calling was a bit discouraging? Parts of chapter 49 talked about him being discouraged, and you thought, that's kind of odd. Why would the suffering, why would the servant who's coming to reign be discouraged about anything? Then we got, tonight we'll get into 50 through 52, and we're going to start watching him suffer. And in 53, where it eventually goes next week, is he dies. How does the king die? That, you know, in other words, if you know what's, we know what's happened so we can piece it together. But not knowing it means this whole thing looks really strange. And it's why Isaiah takes some time to explain it. Not perhaps sufficiently to cover everything, but to just elaborate on it. He doesn't just cover it in a moment. He covers it over a series of chapters to make clear this is going to happen and try to explain why. So 49 was the call. Now we start the sufferings. Along the way, we learn some things uh, about the future. So, uh, chapter 50, verse 1. And 50 is a short chapter, so we read the whole thing at once. So, 50, verses 1 through 11. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. 
He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who is a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze, this you will have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. All right, to make sense of this chapter, you have to start with remembering one fact about Second Isaiah as a whole. The, it's got this complicated historic timeline in the book. So the, the timeline of Second Isaiah, remember, is Isaiah writing to a future generation of Jews. So as, as Isaiah penned the words, he's writing for an audience that's in the future. Primarily, that audience is the Jews in the Babylonian captivity, about 150 years in the future, right? The hard part is he speaks in the present tense. So if you and I were to write to someone who's going to live in the United States in 150 years from now, we would write a future tense uh, method of saying, here's what will happen. Isaiah wrote, here's what is happening, but he's writing it about the future. So all of this chapter is when, when you look at the pieces that are not speaking about the Messiah, but instead are speaking about uh, Israel in their future day. Just remember, he's writing it as if he's living there with them. He opens the chapter here with one of those future voices. Here's how the, the chapter opens. Verse 1, verse 2, you hear it said, Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce? What's happening here is, is the Lord, God, is responding to complaints from Israel, but the complaints are not recorded in the text. We're hearing God respond to things that are coming out of the voices of Israel in this future day. What is going on for Israel in that future day? 150 years or so from the time Isaiah wrote this, what will they be experiencing? They're in captivity in Babylon. So is Judah now, the southern kingdom, is in captivity in a foreign land. Previous to that, their northern uh, counterpart had been wiped out by the Assyrians. So what are they saying? Well, in, in light of what God himself says in response, we can make sense. We can assume what Israel was saying to God while they were in captivity. They were saying, our God has divorced us. Our God has forsaken us, sold us into slavery, or something to that effect. God, in response to that, says in verse 1, No, I didn't divorce you. If I had, he says, I would have issued a bill of divorcement or a, a, a divorce decree. Now, that's interesting because there is a future day through another prophet, Jeremiah specifically, where God does discuss having divorced northern Israel, the northern kingdom. So, there was a divorce in the, in the words of Jeremiah spoken to the northern kingdom. But he never did that to Judah in this case. The writ of divorce is never there. Secondly, in verse 2, he says, I am not in debt to any man so as to need to sell or ransom my own children. That was something that was not uncommon. A man who would enter into too much debt in, the, in that day 
could sell his children to relieve himself of the debt. And of course, children were sellable in the sense that they became workers or servants in somebody else's home or on their land. So he's saying, look, who did I owe that I had to sell you? Or how did I ever uh, appear to divorce you? The answers to the questions then are, no, I didn't divorce you. No, I didn't have a debt I was trying to pay off. He says, in fact, in verses 2 and, uh, and into 3, he adds a third consideration. He says, it's not because I lack the power to save you. You notice that? He mentions how powerful God is. He says, do I not have the power to deliver? That's an even more compelling question if you're in captivity, isn't it? If you're in captivity, you're part of God's people by covenant, and you find yourself in that situation, and so you say it must be God is divorced us, sold us into slavery, or is just unable to save us. He addresses all three, and I think the last one is particularly compelling because when you get to the right answer, that being, of course, God does have the power to deliver you, it begs a huge question, doesn't it? You have the power, you haven't divorced us, so what's the question? Why are we here then? Why don't you deliver us? The reason that question is so compelling is it has personal application to every living Christian. I mean, whether it's death, unemployment, sickness, financial troubles, you name whatever comes upon mankind, mankind whatever situations occur, the obvious question is, what, why did God allow it to happen? And his answer is, well, I could have stopped it. That's, that's self-evident God could stop it. The big question that has to be answered then is, why? Why not? And God presents to them the answer to why. We, we would each hope to know the answer in our own whys, and sometimes we get the answer, and, and other times we just don't know. But it's always, there's always a why, because it's not chance, and because God has the power to stop it and doesn't, that says something about his desires. We just have to understand that God doesn't always do what we prefer, because there's greater purposes in what he does sometimes. In this case, the answer is, as he says it in end of verse 1, he says, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions. So why are they in bondage? Because of sin. Their sin has put them in this situation. And that becomes the, the transition when you reach verse 4 for a new presentation of the suffering servant of Christ again. If it seems a bit disjointed, he's talking first about Israel in captivity, and then he jumps into the servant Christ speaking in the first person, you notice that? In verse 4, Christ starts speaking again in the first person. Where did that come from? Well, the transition makes sense when you think of it this way. Who has to come and pay the price for sin so that we as a people, both Israel and the Gentiles, are removed once and for all from bondage, from the consequences of sin? I mean, if Israel is in Babylon because of their sins against God under the Old Covenant... Then he introduces his Messiah, but more than just introduce him, he talks, to him, talks about his suffering here to draw the parallel. I have to send my son to suffer. Go back to how I introduced the night. They're going to come upon this suffering scene and this dying in chapter 53, the readers are, the Jewish readers are, and they're going to be potentially confused about why the Messiah has to suffer and die. Here's your answer. It's been set up at the very beginning here by Isaiah to show you're in bondage for a reason. Why? Your sins. Now, let me show you what I'm going to do to correct them, atone for them. I have to send my own son and die in your place. Now, is that theology spelled out here in, in so many words? No, but it does come through the text as you read through it. The connection is made as you go through it. 
Now look at some of the details that come out of the first person discussion of Christ in verse four, for example. You have here in verses four and five the early life of the Messiah prophesied, obviously, years before he came. And it's interesting here that if you look at the Bible as a whole, we really have very little in the Bible about what the early years of Christ's life was like. The best we get out of the New Testament is Luke. I'm leaving apart for the moment the birth. But when you talk about his growing years, you get Luke. But even Luke doesn't pick up until about the age of 12. And even then, it's just a little moment. Then you jump from there to the baptism of John. For the most part, you know nothing about how Christ lived his life as a child. And yet, wouldn't that fascinate all of us to know what a sinless child is like? Oh, wouldn't we love to have known what that was like? Now, there's another quality to the growing up of Christ that's fascinated me even more than the sinlessness of it. I, I could actually see the, the, a sinless child and think that that could make some sense in, in our reality if you think of it simply as a child that seems to always be doing the right thing and always have a sweet good nature and always have you know, selfless interests and things. It would be unusual, certainly, and it would be very remarkable, but it wouldn't make him an alien. You know, it doesn't necessarily make the child look and sound weird. It's just a perfect child. What's more interesting to me is how did he become knowledgeable, self-aware that he was the Messiah? How did he gain self-awareness that he was God? How did he know the scriptures? We probably make assumptions that, well, he's God, so of course he just knew it. That puts his humanity at at the expense of his divinity. There's got to be something more there. He was fully man. And that means we cannot place more emphasis on his divinity than on his humanity, which means as man, he had to be trained. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn simple things and he had to learn more complex things and he had to learn to read. Then he had to learn to read the Bible and the scriptures as they had it and begin to understand what that meant. Now, as a sinless human being, all of those processes are probably a lot easier than they are for someone whose sin nature gets in the way. But that still doesn't mean it just shows up in his brain automatically. Otherwise, you're just saying he's not truly human in the sense of having to live the life we live. How did he acquire all that knowledge? How did he sit in the temple at age 12 and speak to the wisest Pharisees of his day on matters that confounded them? How does a 12-year-old do that? Well, here you find that out. He says in verses 4 and 5, the Father gave Christ, it says, that's when he's talking in the first person, Yahweh has given me the tongue of disciples. That means in the Hebrew that the father spoke to him as a student. It's not saying that Jesus had the tongue of disciples. It's saying God the father spoke to him, taught him, the father to the son specifically. And then it goes further to say in uh, the end of verse four, the father would wake the son every morning to teach Christ and Christ listened to what he was taught from the father every morning. Morning after he awakens me morning by morning, he awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The father taught the son everything that he needed the son to know, which I would assume had to have included the, the very fact that you are God incarnate. It's hard to make sense of it in our mind because we don't know what that's like for obvious reasons. But the text says it. So you have the Father. And of course, what kind of lessons does the, do you get from God the Father personally? Only the best, right? So uh, in verse 5, he clarifies or goes a step further. Jesus says his ears were opened. He didn't turn back or disobey. That's a teacher's dream right there. And in fact, you notice a subtle jab at somebody? Who's getting critiqued in the same moment that Jesus is testifying to his 
easy learning abilities. I'm thinking of the new Adam versus the original Adam. The original Adam was taught by the father in the garden. Did he open his ears and obey? No, he disobeyed. I think there's a direct comparison here intentionally to Adam's behavior under similar tutelage because it's, it reemphasizes the problem that Jesus is coming to address. He had to walk the walk of man, but not make the mistakes that Adam made so as to be a new Adam. Adam had a unique opportunity in the fact that he started sinless, which no other man could say he had, you know, no other man short of Christ could say. So Adam becomes the clearest parallel. Sinless man taught by the father directly, and yet one obeyed and one didn't. The connection here between the two events you've seen here in the text is critically important here. Above what I just read, above verses 4 and 5, what did we just see? We have Israel complaining because of their bondage, which we, we know is bondage brought upon them because of sin. Below the point I just read, starting in verses 6 and onward, we're going to see the description of the, or some descriptions, there's others to come, but some descriptions of the Messiah's suffering, willingly suffering because the Father asked him to. Look at the connection. Israel's sin, the Messiah's suffering. What connects those two events in the text? His sinless obedience. So the sinfulness of man is, makes necessary the death and the suffering of a Messiah who himself is not sinful but is sinless and obedient. And more than that, the teaching the Father was doing for his sake wasn't merely teaching of facts and knowledge and so on. It was a teaching of his mission. Why are you here? And you are here to suffer on the cross and die. He was being taught that, I'm convinced, from the earliest time. And his understanding of his purpose was solidified in that teaching as well. That's why he didn't disobey. He understood what he was there to do. Now the sufferings come to the foreground in the text. So in verses 6 and onward, you notice he starts to talk about what he was willing to go through. But I want you to notice the tone of the description throughout. It doesn't merely describe the tortures that he endured. It emphasizes he allowed it. It emphasizes he submitted to it. Look at the phrasing. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks. I did not cover my face from humiliation. So it's not merely a recounting of what happened to him. It's really about the, the fact that he did it willingly and obediently. How he did it is really the issue here in the text. He is despised by men. He finds his strength in the Lord nonetheless. I found it interesting just in passing the plucking out of the beard. If you know anything about Hebrews, you know that there's honor in a beard. And so if, uh, a plucking of a beard is a sign of dishonor or despising someone. But what does it tell us about Christ? He had a beard. Just like any good Jewish, law-abiding Jewish man, he, he wore a beard as the law required. That's why Orthodox men are always shown with a beard. That's, the, that's a requirement in the law, literally, to have a beard. And so he wore one. Uh, now, he then goes to talking about how he faces this humiliation. He says, Father is Christ's help. That the Father, though he had decided, obviously, that for at least a time, Christ was going to suffer and go through these things. In the end, Christ is vindicated by the Father. And he, he alludes to that. He says, my vindic the one who vindicates me is near. My Father is near me, in other words. Father helps him even while those who persecute him are wearing him out. So the eternal God here contrasted with the mortal flesh of men. I love the fact that he says that at the end. He says they're going to all wear out like a garment. The moth is going to eat them. But meanwhile, they're tormenting me, the eternal one, who ironically will die in their lifetime, but will live on eternally where they won't. 
that's the picture. Now, that chapter ends beautifully with a contrast between 10 and 11. You kind of get the whole gospel here in a sense. I realize it's, you know, it doesn't have every element of it as we, would, as we would preach it today, but it has all the essentials. The problem, man's sin. The solution, a sinless substitute. The means for that propitiation, a suffering and a death. And then an appointment for those who would follow. Are they going to trust in the Lord and on that sacrifice or trust in themselves and what they have prepared for themselves in eternal judgment? I mean, it's the classic gospel presentation in that regard. So in verse 10, who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? That would be obeying Christ or obeying the gospel that walks in darkness and has no light. That, in other words, is in need of salvation, that knows of their own sin and knows they need something. They need light. Then the answer, let them trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In verse 11, in contrast, the unbeliever. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire. What a great view of what it means to walk in sin. That you're, if you will, the, the fires of judgment burn on the fuel that your sin provides. So as people walk in their life as a sinful person, you know, it's not a stretch to say they're kindling their own judgment fire. And... Uh, the writer here, Isaiah, says you, these people are encircled by their firebrands. The sense here is there's no escape. They have, they have put themselves in a prison by, of their own making, a judgment that they have created for themselves. And he says, this you will have from my hand. So by God's decree, my here being Christ, the judge, by his decree, they will lie down in torment. Now, we're going to move to chapter 51. Let's look at the sequencing here. We're still looking at the Messiah's suffering, but we aren't looking at his death yet. That comes in 53. Now, if you are a Jew following this discussion closely, there's the, these issues of suffering and death start to really bother you for obvious reasons. They don't make sense at first. In chapter 50, in particular, you see this suffering to include humiliation and shame. That's a particularly concerning thing because shame is, you know, Eastern cultures in particular are very uh, conscious of shame or honor and the lack of honor in this case the, the the bringing of shame on the messiah would have been very troubling development and of course as we get to 52 53 you're going to see the messiah die and if they don't have an understanding of propitiation then you have no reason to hope in your messiah if you don't understand propitiation someone dying in our place our sin being placed on that person and their righteousness being given to us if that concept doesn't come out in the text a little bit, then the thought of a Messiah coming to die ruins your hope of why he would come at all. It just stops to make any, it stops meaning anything to you. Or as some Jews did, they took this meaning and tried to reconcile it with other meaning in the text of, of other parts of the Old Testament to tell them there were two Messiahs, one that died and one that conquered, because they couldn't understand one doing both. Look at 51. In 51 through 52, two within the Jewish culture as a whole do you begin to speak to as God, as God speaking, if your intent is to console them a little bit about this coming death, this coming suffering and death? Who do you want to talk to first? Who do you want to really take aside and say, let me explain something to you. This has to happen. Don't get worried. Which group within the Jewish culture in particular needs to know this and understand it and, and be encouraged? Which group does this matter for? The remnant. For the ones who don't know or care for the Messiah to begin with, aren't looking for him, aren't faithful to God in any sense, what difference does it make? 
But to the ones who have put a trust in the Messiah in advance, right? And Abraham, in other words, someone. And of course, in Isaiah's day, we'd be talking about somebody else. But a Jew who's saved by faith, just as Paul explains in Romans, because it's a forward looking faith. I trust in a coming propitiation, a coming savior to that one. When their savior is being introduced to them in Isaiah, think of how that must feel when you say, I trust in the Messiah. Then the first time you get a chance to learn about him, you realize he's going to die. And if you don't understand propitiation, you wonder, now what? Well, Isaiah's going to explain, God's going to explain through Isaiah now to a remnant in chapter 51 that they don't need to be worried about this. 51 verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him, and then I blessed him. And multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joyance and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of melody. And look at the logic here. To those who pursue righteousness, the remnant, in other words, he says, think about those who've come before you. This reference to the rock from which you were hewn. He's saying, you're like a child of the rock that I started with. So as a member of Israel today, where do you trace your beginnings to? Abraham. Look back to how they got started before you worry too much. Because what's the circumstance of this audience again? The remnant is where at the point they read these things. In Babylon, in captivity, dwindling in number, their, their land destroyed. Uh, you know, everything looks bleak and hopeless. They've learned their Messiah has to suffer and die. That just adds insult to injury. And now he's telling them, think back to how you all got started. Abraham, remember him? Too old to have children. Sarah, way too old to have children. Just two of them. Just two of them. And he says, when, they were, when he was but one, I called him. And then what followed? Blessed him and multiplied him. So what he's saying is, even though you're a remnant, you're small in number, you're weak, and you appear to be fading out, consider what I did with just one person. Do you have any reason to fear that you're too small? That, you're, that you're th- your existence is threatened? If that's so, think about where you started. If I can do all of that with Abraham and Sarah as old as they were, then why are you... There's no reason for you to worry in your current circumstances as if I can't rescue you. Begs the big question again, right? Why then do you have us here? If that's what you're saying. The same God that produced Israel produced the church through his Holy Spirit. And the same answers come back from him today that came back then. Where did you all start? Twelve guys, eleven actually, and too scared to know what to do after it was all over. And where did we go from there? Pentecost, church. Look, if I can start with a few you know, fishermen and tax collectors, don't worry about the size or strength of what you see around you today. God's still at work. He's got a plan. There's no reason to be discouraged about what you see in the sense of ultimate victory. In the sense of what ultimately might come. Doesn't mean we don't try to make things better. I'm just saying it's not a reason to be discouraged. Verse 3, he repeats, the promises for Israel are that they would rise in strength and peace would reign. So those promises haven't changed. Now, he goes more into the issue of the salvation the Messiah will bring. Verse 4, pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me and I will set my justice for a light of the people's. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me and for my arm. They will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky. Then look to the earth beneath 
For the sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them like a garment and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. The word salvation, Yeshua, is salvation. Yeshua is the name for Jesus. So every time you see the word salvation there, you could in place put the name Christ. Now, they wouldn't have known his name going in, right? The name they were given out of Isaiah was Emmanuel. But as this is read for the New Testament believer, the connections become more obvious. When he talks about my salvation will go out, my salvation is for all generations, it's intended to be a double entendre. It is true, Christ is salvation, and his name is the name above all names. So the name is part of the the statement. Looking at the text, though, now down from the top, he describes his plan here to redeem them as a law and justice goes forth. Now, it means two things. It means the law, God's holy law, and his justice on earth is embodied in Christ. When Christ rules, he will bring about a law-abiding world, a world of justice under his authority. So when he says, pay attention, a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples, he's saying, I will put Christ in this position of power. So the, this coming righteousness is Christ judging the world and the nations, and it brings a salvation from that judgment that endures forever. So it is both the embodiment of law and justice in Christ himself and also the nature of the time on earth when he reigns, a time of law and a time of justice. He's telling his people, have eyes for eternity. Where are they sitting right now? In captivity. They're having a pity party. Justifiably so. I'm sure it was horrible. But what he's saying to them as the righteous remnant, the ones who believe, stop measuring your circumstances and more than that, stop measuring your God by your circumstances. Start having eyes for eternity. Because these people, he says, who despise you, he says they have an end of their own to come to. And when that end comes, they're done. My salvation is eternal. My salvation is to all generations. So though they don't see this maybe about themselves yet as in terms of resurrection, maybe that's not necessarily clear, though it might have been. Yet that's what he is saying. You see how that changes your perspective? I don't care what happens to us. I don't care how bad it is in the moment. Someone with eyes for eternity says, take me. My body's going to go away anyway. Just do it now. I don't care. I mean, really, what's the difference? In the sense of eternal terms, my eyes looking for eternity into what God has promised me, it's all going to burn up anyway. Do it whenever you want, however you want. I'm not saying I have a death wish, but my point is my, my countenance, for lack of a better term, is not, measured, is not dependent on that. I mean, I'll have a good day and a bad day like anyone else, but, but that's not what defines my outlook on life, right? I can have a bad moment. I don't have a bad lifetime if I understand Christ. My outlook totally, will totally change and should. And he's asking them to have that perspective. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose hearts is my law. He says, don't fear the reproach of men. Don't be d- dismayed by them. Remember your righteousness is by faith. Now the text comes back to the Messiah. So the pattern is he's given words of encouragement or reminder to Israel, followed by details about his suffering servant. New words and admonishment or or reminders here, more detail about his servant. But the two are always connected. In the first case, it was, you're there for your sin. Let me introduce you to the solution, the suffering servant. Now he says to them, 
in a sense, be encouraged even as you are in this time of bondage. My plan for you is eternal. So now look at what he starts saying about the Messiah. Verse 9. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of of the son of man who is made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of of the oppressor, and he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. So the contrast is, I just told, God just tells them that they need to remember to look at the eternal, and he follows that with a description of the triumphant Christ. You see the first coming reflected in the earlier description, his death, his suffering, the second coming is being reflected here. He's, he's juxtaposing their circumstances and their future with Christ's circumstances and Christ's future, one making the other possible. The arm of the Lord here, as you look at the verses I read, the arm of the Lord in verse 9, that is Christ. So wherever we see that phrase going forward, we will make that same application. He will call Christ at times the arm of the Lord. It's in the sense of his right arm, his right hand, his, his arm of action in creation. He says to him, awake. Now, that's going to be a common feature over the next several chapters. He will call for things or people to awake. The first here is to Christ, awake. What do we make of that? Why would God the Father be telling his son to awake? In light of what's read later in that same passage, what is it the Father is saying to the son? Awake. We say that kind of a term to someone when we want them to do what? Get up, right? Get up, get going. If you think of it in that way, what is he then saying about his son? What's the command of preface to? Return, right? This is the comment to Christ, if you will. I'm not saying this will be literally the way the father sends the son. I'm saying that in the text here, it's a, it's a way of picturing the moment when the father tells the son, time to go back to earth, time to pick up where you left off, awake. And he says, was it not you who in past generations was awakened in those old days. So if I compare awake in the sense of how it's being used here, he says that the, in, in 9b or, or so, he says, awake as in the days of old, in generations of long ago. So let's use the word awake now in the context it's being used here. Here it refers to activity visible in creation. God at work in creation among his people, showing his might to his people. Those are the examples he listed, right? What were some of the examples? Rahab. Now, if you wondered if this is the harlot from Jericho and you're thinking, he cut her up to pieces? When did that happen? I missed that part of the story. No. Rahab here is a, is a word that means Egypt. So Rahab is a, another word, a, a synonym, if you will, a pet name for Egypt. 
Now, how do I know that for sure? Well, you can find it elsewhere in Scripture, for that matter. You can see it used in other verses. But the context here is actually enough for you to see it. Because he says he's going to cut Rahab in pieces and pierce the dragon. There's Scripture references elsewhere in Old Testament prophets that call the Pharaoh of Egypt the dragon. So again, if I take Rahab, knowing it can mean Egypt, and dragon here, knowing that it's often used to describe Pharaoh, I think I may be on to something. But the real confirmation is in verse 10. In the same, in, along the same reasoning, he says, was it not you who dried up the sea? Okay, that reminds us of the Exodus, doesn't it? The waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway? Okay, that's sounding awful familiar. Who re, for the redeemed to cross over. Well, that's the Red, Red Sea Exodus. Putting it all together, it's clearly a reference to that whole moment. Egypt being cut to pieces in the plagues. Pharaoh being pierced in the sense that he was targeted specifically his son. And he was obviously the leader. And then all the rest. What do you notice that's interesting about that description? Who did all those things? Christ. Now, what we're saying is that the Exodus story doesn't speak specifically enough about the actor that we could tell which member of the Godhead was doing it. But Isaiah clarifies who it was. The angel of the Lord was always the active participant in God's work on earth. And the angel of the Lord is God, and this is a, a picture of God the Son, and this is a picture or a description of that happening. It confirms what we've been seeing throughout the text. If, God the, if the Godhead has ever done anything in creation from the moment of its establishment through the entire time of its existence, if there's ever been a manifestation of God in the world, it is by the Son, by the Word, by God's Son. He is, as uh, Paul says in Colossians, or in Hebrews, right? He is the one who upholds it by the word of his power. So the very fact that it exists one moment to the next is an active effort on the part of the Son to keep it going. The implication being that if he ever stopped, the world would stop. The whole thing would fall apart. So it's not just that it's there and it's only there until he stops it. It's there because he's actively making it be there every day. That's the Son's role. He is the member of the Godhead who expresses the existence of God into creation into a created form, and then acts through it. So when God the Father wants to split the Red Sea, the Son does it. When he wants anything to happen, the Son is at work doing it. Today we say he's at work in us through his Spirit. It is the Son, the Spirit of the Godhead that is in us, but it is the servant of the Father and the Son that is at work. The Son is still the one who is Lord of all. What is this call then? The call is to awaken in the sense of the Messiah returning Back to earth to pick up where he left off in manifesting God's power among his people. He's done it in the past through moments like Exodus. He's going to do it to free them from bondage. He says that here in, the, in a minute. But he's talking at least at the beginning here about a future awakening when he will come and rule and express his, uh, his power in that way. So now, verses 12 through 13, there's a decision here for the reader. He says, on the one hand, you, you endure threats from men. They had it in the form of Babylon. We get it in other ways, perhaps. But men get threats, get intimidations, and despise, were despised by other men, perhaps. But he says men will die, and men have no power in eternal terms. In fact, the, the Hebrew word here for man in verse 12, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? There's three Hebrew words for the word man. Ish is the most common one. Adam is another one, which means more like humanity as opposed to an individual man. Uh, so you have ish for man. This is a third word that's not very often used for man. It's inash. And inash means literally feeble man. 
It's a kind of man who's very feeble or weak. So here he's saying, he's emphasizing, you have, on the one hand, threats from men, but these men are weak, they have no power, and yet you, you claim to fear them. If you fear these weak men, it's because you've forgotten your Lord. That's what he says in verse 13. You have therefore forgotten your Lord. He sets this up as a choice, a mutually exclusive choice. So here's the principle out of Scripture. You can find it elsewhere, but here's one example of it. When we fear men, we have forgotten the Lord. To some extent, for some period of time, when fear rules, the Lord isn't in our hearts. And it simply makes sense when you understand who has real power. I think of it like this. When you are, as a child, scared of the dark and not willing to get off your bed because something under the bed might grab you, right, when they get out of the bed, is there, some, is there something there? What are you really afraid of? Is there something under your bed? Let's assume there isn't for, for argument's sake. You're fearing a power that is unknown or a power that is, that is assumed to, to be somewhere. But in reality, there's no power there. In God's perspective, when we fear any human being, from God's point of view, that person is just as if ineffective and powerless against you as that invisible force under your bed was. In eternal terms. In eternal terms. When we measure on eternal terms, we can see that as well as he does. The problem is when we don't measure on eternal terms. When we live for the here and now. So, I worry that I'll die or I'll be hurt or I'll get sick so I avoid something or I do something different. Despite what God might want me to do otherwise. What am I fearing? Something temporal. What am I forgetting? The Lord and his eternal power and my eternal relationship to him. When the eternal dominates my thinking, the temporal stops mattering. And fear is no longer there. There's nothing to fear anymore. Easier said than done. I understand that. But at the same time, the proof of it or the truth of it can't be denied. It's how you find examples of people, in, particularly in mission work, who run around to the other side of the world doing things that you wonder in your own mind, how could they ever do that? I could never have done that. The only answer to that is not that they're braver than you and I, but that their focus was on something eternal, not on something temporal. And the fear wasn't there then. At least it wasn't enough to stop them. Christ didn't fear his oppressors because he understood, even going into the, the, the death process, he knew what was coming and he didn't let it stop him because he understood the Father's power was greater and the sovereignty of God is at work. There's a corollary here. If God is sovereign and has the power to make all things turn out whatever way he wants, then as you experience some kind of oppressive situation at the hands of another man or woman, you're watching God at work. Not to say that God authored the sin, but the very fact that he's allowed the situation is still evidence of his decision making at work. So as you're confronted by that, why fear what God is bringing? You know God, you know his character, and knowing that you have no reason to fear him, but you yet are being persecuted, why do you fear that persecution? Why avoid it? It's at God's disposal to do what he wants, and he's obviously not changing it. Now, again, I'm not saying stir up trouble and look for it. I'm just saying when confronted with something that's an oppressive situation, it's God's sovereignty at work. The ultimate example for any of these situations always comes back to who? has to come back to Christ. When Christ... You can't say you're going to suffer worse than he did, I would argue. And if he's willing to go through it, eyes open, voluntarily, it's a statement of how important obedience to sovereignty was for Christ. We can't ever say we have greater reason not to do that. Finally, in verses 14 through 16, that last section where he leaves the poetry and goes back to prose, God draws the conclusion. And this verse could be read one of two ways. You could see these verses, 14 through 16, referencing the return of exiles from Babylon. So in the short-term sense, you could say he's promising to those who read this, you will go free, you won't die in the dungeon, you won't have, your bread won't be lacking, I'm bringing you back to the land. 
And it could mean that. If it does, then I think it would at least also be referencing the regathering of Israel in the last days. So when he talks here about you will come back and be covered by my hand and you will say to Zion, I will say to Zion, you are my people. I think there's an implied future fulfillment of this with Israel in in the time of tribulation. But it seems most directly connected to their circumstances in Babylon. Moving on, 17. He says, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, famine and sword. How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your Lord, of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, Lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. So in this passage, God walks Israel through about 2,000 years of history in that one little passage, in that one little section. In verses 17 through 21, so the first part, 17 through 21, there's the description of the coming judgment against Israel for their sins in rejecting the covenant. When did that culminate? A.D. 70. The Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Look at how he describes it. He says, God has a chalice or a cup of judgment ready for for Israel. He says, you've drained it. So you're going to receive the full measure of it. Two things are going to happen to you. There won't be anybody left in the city. Verse 18, he says, the city is destroyed. And then in verse 20, the people are killed and taken like animals into slavery. Both of those things happen in A.D. 70. And then after those verses, the history lesson jumps forward to a point where God removes the cup. So you notice in verse 22, he says, behold, I've taken it out of your hand. After he takes the cup away, they'll never drink it again. Instead, it'll become a drink for her oppressors and the Israel will be redeemed and will live in her land again. So what is the picture there? What's, what's the big scene he's painting here? On the one hand, he says, I have a cup prepared for you. On the other hand, I'm going to take it away in the future. He's speaking to people who are sitting in Babylon. They're under judgment for a time because of their sins under the old covenant. They're going to come back out of this time, right? But then they just fall right back into a time of judgment for rejecting their Messiah. But ultimately, they're going to be rescued when he returns for them. The word Zion there is actually a unique word to the Jew. It references New Jerusalem. It's a term that means the the fulfillment of Jerusalem in its ultimate sense. So when they talk about Zion, they're talking about the millennial New Jerusalem. Interesting political aside, by the way, when you hear Zionists or people who want Zion, what they're saying is in that in man-made ways, they're trying to create the Jerusalem that God has promised for them in the eternal. Which, of course, they can't do. But someone who would be a Zionist today is someone who's looking for the triumphant Jerusalem over the world. That gets the Arabs all upset. They don't want to see a triumphant Jerusalem. Neither are the Jews nor the Arabs going to have a thing to say about it. It comes about as God wants it to in a future day. But anyway, that's what Zion means. So he's thrown out this larger plan, this larger picture for Israel, even as they're in judgment and think in Babylon. He's saying there is yet a greater judgment to come upon the people, followed by their final restoration at the hand of the Messiah. So this is not the end of your judgment or at the end of your redemption. 
verse 1 then of chapter 52 and see how the suffering concludes here before we get into the death next week. We have a new awake here. This is the next call to awake. It's the third call, if you've been counting. And this one is to Zion, this future Zion. Awake, awake, he says, clothe yourselves in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into it. Shake yourselves, shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to reside there and then the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. And it's kind of hard to follow these at first, but they make sense as you look at them. It's the new Jerusalem, so we know that means it is the millennial. When does that, how does that begin? How does Israel arrive at that point? Christ returns, right? And that's when he says in verse 3, you were sold for nothing. Remember that refers to them being in captivity? Who's hearing these words initially? The ones who are in Babylon in captivity. You were put in that position for no, not sold for anything. I, I made you go there, in other words, not because I was in debt. And he says, likewise, when it comes time to redeem you, he says, I'm going to redeem you without money. How does he redeem them? Christ's blood. Just as their oppressors came upon them, not for their own reasons, but because God brought them, he said. Likewise, he says, salvation is going to come because of God, not for any other reason. So it's a promise for Christ's salvation to come to them. Now, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the nations of the earth may see the salvation of our God. In the Hebrew, I'm told this is some of the most poetic language in all of of, uh, Isaiah. It's a shame we don't have that ability to to appreciate it as much. You could say this is Isaiah's Hamlet, you know, getting into something very artistic. In verse 7, you start with a phrase that's very familiar to one if you know Romans. Paul quotes out of this, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Christ is the feet. Christ is the one who comes. Christ is the one who delivers, quote, good news. The word good news in Hebrew... Gospel. It's the same word that the Hebrew uses for the sense of gospel. How lovely is Christ, in other words? The answer is very lovely. And he is the one to bring this good news to them. When you mention, when he, why does he localize it to the feet? What's that an allusion to? He stands on the Mount of Olives upon his return, right? The standing of his, of his feet on the Mount of Olives is the moment of his coming back for Israel. Think now, here's where you're putting two and two and four and six together from all you may have heard over time in Scripture. We know his return is accompanied by this standing on the mount. That's a key feature of the, of the moment that we're told about. What brings him to that moment? The Jews calling out for him in tribulation, right? Under judgment, under attack. So how lovely to a Jew will be the feet of Christ 
who brings good news to them as they've called for him to return. So this is a clear reference to that moment of his actual physical return and their recognizing of it. Now, take that back into Romans where Paul's using this this uh, area of Isaiah in his argument for why the Jews have rejected Christ. He says the Jews are supposed to respond to the feet of Christ in this way. And then he says in Romans, well, but they they didn't do that. This happened, didn't it? And they didn't do that. And Paul is saying essentially, no, this didn't happen as Isaiah is describing it. That's yet to happen. He came intentionally to die and they would not accept him. But in a future day, this will be the way that they they receive him. Moving on. Uh, he says that the, the ends of the earth will see him. That sounds like the second coming, doesn't it? And what do they see at the end of verse 10? The salvation of our God. There's the word again, right? What does the world see? The Christ, the, the Jesus of our God. They see their salvation. 52.11. Let's finish this up. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, as Jesus, so this is a scene that's continuing. He's come back. Then, as he's come back, they are comforted and they receive their salvation. Then the command is: depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. He's saying, in other words, they are to come out of their hiding and out from their oppression and out from whatever they're under. And they are to enter the new Jerusalem and serve their God there in the temple. Touch nothing unclean, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. They serve God in the temple. That's one of the roles of the the Jews in the millennial. But notice, they don't go out in haste. What's the last major time in their history they were in slavery and a deliverer came and escorted them out of slavery? Moses, right, in the Exodus, which was referenced earlier. His earlier comparison was, awake, arm of the Lord, Last time you were on earth, you were showing your might for your people's sake in doing great things among men, showing that we shouldn't fear men. And that specific reference was to the Exodus. Escort them out. Now he's looking forward to the next time Christ comes. He's awoken to do the same thing again. And of course, he makes reference here to them being set free from bondage and led out. But the difference now is it's not in haste. Remember the first time they couldn't even let bread rise. They had to escape because there was still oppression around them. Here they can take their time. They can walk in. They can saunter into the new Jerusalem. They've got nothing to fear anymore. It's a different kind of return. And now he returns once more to the favorite main subject of the section, the suffering servant and his suffering and to why he must suffer. Verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. I've read this section. I'm going to discuss most of it next week as part of leading into 53. But this begins the description of his death. And you may have seen these verses as I've quoted them at some point in the past. I'm not sure. But in verse 14 particularly, His appearance was so marred by the uh, crucifixion and by what went on before the crucifixion, the the whipping and so on, 
that his appearance was marred more than any man. People were astonished at his appearance and astonished here is in the negative sense of the word shocked. And his form was more marred than the sons of men. There's a sense here of just how disfigured Christ was by the treatment he received. That begins the discussion of his death, which comes up in chapter 53. So then looking at that, we'll move about four or five chapters forward past his death toward the end of the section of the Messiah into the section, getting very close next week into the section of the Holy Spirit, which is the last piece. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we can see your son in a new way through the word. Thank you, Father, that we can have an opportunity to teach others about what we learn. I pray you'd give us that opportunity. But always, Father, we would live it as much as we can say it and that our lives, Father, would testify more than our words. And we thank you for the chance to continue in this study. And we do pray, Father, we'd have a chance to finish it in one way or another and that we could see the full counsel of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.